Well, it is a delight to be here. And before I start, this I'm speaking a little extra so that my he can adjust from my voice. He said, say a few words so I can get your voice right. This looks like a cell phone, but it's not. Not this morning. It's a protection device. It's to protect you from me. Because it's a big timer, right? And it guarantees that I know how long I've talked for and that you'll get lunch later, right? Um, and I find it very handy, right? Uh, there's a, yes, there's a clock up there, but, you know, it's easy to ignore the clock. This is really hard to ignore. And so I, I try to use it whenever I can in, in situations like this. Even then, I ignore it sometimes. Um, this morning... Uh-huh. Now, the other thing is we don't have a controller, so I, can, I can't control the, the overhead. So when you see me go... It means I want a slide change. I'm not pointing at you. Now, the title of this message is, as you see up there, Walking with the Disciples. But if I was to give it a longer title, I'd say Cultivating a Worldview of Trust and Obedience in the Lord. And so, to start off, we're not going to talk about our passage. We're going to talk about something that I know Matt has talked about occasionally and preached about, which is worldview. See, it works. Now, this is somebody, uh, James Sire is somebody I know Matt mentioned when he talked about worldview. This is a later from a later book that Sire uh, wrote, and he sort of manipulated his, um, his definition a little bit. But basically, a worldview is a set of presuppositions. Now, those can be true or not true. It doesn't matter. Which we hold consciously or unconsciously about the basic makeup of the world. In other words, it's what you believe. Whether it's true or not, doesn't matter. You're believing it, so for you, you believe it's true. And you may hold it unconsciously in the sense that you don't think about it all the time, but it's there. It's the elephant in the room. That's why his book is called What It Is. But he also says it's not just an intellectual thing. It's a matter of the heart which concerns us as believers, because our heart is for the Lord. At least, that's what we, how we want it to be, right? And if we look at Genesis, I did get my change, and we, if we look at Genesis, and we look, and he, that's Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted him as righteousness. He had a worldview of belief, that resulted in behavior and a life. And that saved him. So the effects of the worldview are eternal. Now, as Christians, we have two foundational things in our worldview. If we look at Psalm 103 here, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. God is sovereign over all creation. And that is an absolute A friend of mine, uh, brother in the Lord, used to say, God is absolutely sovereign to the molecular level. Right? It, of course, goes beyond that, but it expresses well the reality. The other part of it, of course, is that, from Philippians, Jesus Christ is Lord. Our trust is in Christ and his teachings within the idea of a sovereign God. If you don't believe in a sovereign God, then believing in Christ... Get you nothing. The two things 
go together. And it is interesting. A few years ago, a friend of mine, there was some big event in the town where he lived, and he, people asked him about it, and he started to give a theological explanation, and they said to him, it's always about theology with you. You know why? Because it is always about theology. Theology is what? It's the study of God. It's our relationship to God. So everything in the end concerns your theology, and that's rooted in your worldview. And for us, it's this knowledge of a sovereign God and trust in Jesus, or it should be. Now, if we look at 1 Peter, he states it pretty clearly. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So what have we here? We have arm yourself, take on that worldview, resulting in what? No longer living for human passions, but for the will of God. One thing drives the other. So we are commanded to adopt his worldview, the Lord's, to be of his mind. Now, if we look at the events of Jesus' interactions with his disciples and his followers... It forms a discourse. Now, in literary criticism, in current academic thinking, a discourse is if I stand and talk to you about some issue, I'm talking about the issue, but really I'm, ex- I'm expressing through that my worldview. I'm telling you what I think about how things are. And when you respond to me, you interact, you're giving me yours back, and we're exchanging. And the result of that exchange many times changes your worldview. It alters, irrespective of the topic. We can be talking about dirt in the kitchen sink, but we're still exchanging our view of reality, and that can change our view. Now, when Jesus was interacting with his disciples and his followers, a discourse of that sort was taking place. Their worldview was being altered. And it affected their behavior. Now, we can't stand and talk to Jesus. But what do we do? We interact through this, through the Word. And that is another type of discourse within the same model. So when I'm interacting, that's more of a one-way discourse, but when I'm interacting with this, if I'm really interacting, not just superficially, really interacting with it, then what is happening? The words of the Lord is ha- it's having a discourse with my heart, and my worldview is being altered. Now, for some people who don't accept Christ, it is being altered, but they're rejecting it. Right? It's just the opposite effect. But this is speaking for us, that that discourse is going to reinforce and develop our biblical worldview. And if we look at 2 Timothy, a verse we're all familiar with, it says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. God is sovereign. And so what's it for? 
teaching, reproof, correction, and training. For what? For correct behavior and a correct heart. But that teaching, reproof, correction, and training is what? It's a learning paradigm. It's an interaction. It isn't up like that. It's a discourse that's happening with Scripture. So it's laying out what I just said a minute ago. It's laying out what is happening with Scripture. And that's reinforced. If we were to look in Romans 12 and 2, which is not on the screen, but it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, there you have it. The renewing of your mind is the altering through the discourse of your worldview. Now, there's an um, American and also Swiss, uh, partially Swiss theologian from the ni- mid-1900s, Francis Schaeffer. Some of you have probably heard of him. And he wrote a book called, How Should We Then Live? Now, the book is one thing, but I like the title. How Should We Then Live? Well, the how should we then live is saying, how are we going to live within the worldview of the Lord? And how is that developed? And so, thinking about those things, about the idea of a worldview, it's happening actually right now. You're listening to me. I'm talking about something. I'm expressing to you a view of reality. And within constraints... You take that in, and to the degree that you allow it to, and of course we know that the Holy Spirit is involved in in what? In reminding you, in changing your heart, and so on. Your worldview changes as a result of that under the control of a sovereign Lord through the Spirit. So all the stuff about worldview and discourses and everything, it sounds like a bunch of theory, and it it makes sense intellectually, But when you really look at it, the exchanges are really happening. Now, having said that, that's sort of the macro view, the overview of what we're going to talk about today. But I'd like us to keep it in mind as we look at the passage that that we're going to look at today and see how it's working. And I'm going to examine that as we go along. How is the worldview and the changing of it affecting the disciples And how is it affecting us as we look through this? And you could take it forward to other passages that you might look at. So, we'll start with our text for today. And I'd like to read through it, straight through it. And then we're going to go back and we're going to look a step through it, piece by piece. Now, you can look at it in your pew Bibles if you want. I forgot to look up the page, I have to admit. Um, But this is the ESV version. I'm preaching from the ESV, which is the same version that you have there in the pews. So starting in Matthew 14, starting in verse 22. Immediately, he, that's Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he sent the crowd away. After, they had sent, after he had sent the crowd away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, 
He came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Now, let's step back. That's the passage. But before we look at any passage, um, in real estate, people say what? They say, location, location, location. And in theology, we say, context, context, context. It's all about context. So we're going to look at little pieces of the context here first. What is the setting? Now, this is just after the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus has just performed a miracle. Remember, this miracle was really only seen by the disciples. The crowd out there receiving the, the food, they didn't really understand that he had taken this tiny bit and made it happen for, for this amount of people. It wasn't probably 5,000 people. That's, it says 5,000 men. And consensus seems to be in, 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 in academic circles that it was probably 12, well, say 10 to 15,000 people, men, women, children, and so on. So this is a substantial crowd. And think of the times we're in, and it's outdoors, and maybe what you might call an outdoor amphitheater by the beach with the hill going up and so on. But it's a lot of people. That'll be significant in a few minutes. Now, what had he done? He had demonstrated his power and his authority because he had overridden the normal physical laws of reality in order to feed those people. So, the worldview of the disciples who had seen that happen, his power was reinforced. Now, he'd done other miracles, and they'd seen them. This reinforces that. So here it is, that he is the sovereign Lord. Not only over, just within creation, but over, outside of creation, because he can change reality. So within that setting, who was the target audience? Now these lessons, this says this lesson, but these lessons, really because it's not only the lesson of the feeding of the 5,000, but the lessons that we're going to see in this were for the disciples as believers. And if we look at 1 Corinthians, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. In other words, non-believers. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In other words, it is the power of God reinforcing what we know. Yes, when you're saved, you get a new heart. But all the rest of you doesn't sort of immediately, instantly change. The supporting worldview is developed. 
Now, if we look at the larger context, not just the target audience of the disciples, but the disciples, if we look a little bigger, were believers as we are. So by extension, the principles to be learned extend to us. And it's important that we see that because one of the precepts of Bible study is to see what it meant in the original context. Then look at what it may mean to us. Sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. But in this, in, within, with these things, it's for believers. It's also significant that the disciples weren't special. They were plain, ordinary men. Even at times quite seemingly flawed. They were rough. Fishermen aren't highly cultured guys, right? And tent makers aren't. And so on. So they had lived rough, normal, regular lives lives in society of the times. That's good for us because none of us are very special. And a disciple or believer at that time is a disciple or a believer now. We are all believers by God's grace alone. Now, if we were to look, I, I, I cited Ephesians here. If we were to look at Ephesians 1, 4, it talks about saving. It says, we were saved You were chosen in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. You were predestined to adoption, to the glory of God. In him we have redemption, which he lavished upon us, and so on. But what it doesn't do is says this is just for special people. And this person who was saved is different than that person who was saved. There is no differentiation here. Saved is one believer is another believer. And that's important to us, again, as we look at the lessons to, to, be, to be learned here. All are treated the same in salvation and through sanctification. In Romans 10 and 12, it says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, saved and unsaved. All the, those who are then saved, no matter what their background came from, they are says, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So again, no differentiation. So that gives us a context within which to look at our passage, which we read a minute ago. So what I'd like to do now is go back to the passage and step through it piece by piece and look at, you might say, the practical how of it and the implications now, in William Hendrickson's, Hendrickson's commentary on, on this passage, he has an interesting uh, way of summarizing. He, he summarizes it as a flow of events, which we can sort of look in the back of our minds as we go along. He says, separation, stress, fright, reassurance, wavering, and worship. That's how he looks at the, this passage. And we'll see that as we step through the verses piece by piece. It's a... Not perfect, but useful thumbnail. So as we look at, just checking, we'll start with verse 22 at the beginning. So, and immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him. Now, this is the end of the feeding of the 5,000. The crowd is still there. So you got 
10, 15,000 people milling about, right? And he says, get in the boat while I send the crowd away. So first, why would he want to send them away? He'd want to send them away because, as John 6.15 says, they might try to make him king. The crowd, if they liked him, wanted to make him king. So did the disciples, because they talk about it. He kept saying, no, 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 that's not it. But they sort of really didn't get it sometimes. They still wanted an earthly, they wanted the messianic king, the, the true earthly king that the Jews had talked about forever, basically. And they wanted to make him do that. And, of course, we know that that wasn't the case, but that didn't stop them from wanting it. Also, think about this. What if you had a pa- you got a pastor and you've got a bunch of elders, okay, and then you've got this massive horde of people, some of whom were probably quite antagonistic, right? All milling around and trying to get to the guy. And, he sa- and the pastor says, okay, I'll be fine. You guys just go off. Well, the elders or a group of his followers are, love him. They're not going to want to go. They're going to say, no, Lord, we, we need to stay and, and help you, protect you from the crowd, and so on. Right? But that's not what happens. They go. They show obedience to Jesus irrespectively of their worldly concerns or desires. They do as he said. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you will do what? You will obey me. Right? Didn't even say you're going to feel warm and fuzzy about it. He said, you will obey me, and they do that. Right? So, moving on to the next verse, verse 23. After he had sent the crowd away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. So, he models the importance of time alone with the Lord. Remember in Matthew 6, 6, it says, When you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. In other words, spend time with the Lord. Now, interesting enough, Jesus does the whole night. The normal um, time with pious people would spend in prayer at that point was maximum two hours. So Jesus vastly exceeds that. And I think Matthew Henry's uh, comment is very good. A good man is never less alone than when alone with the Lord. But the key here is he demonstrates, first they, we have the obedience, and then Jesus demonstrates the importance, even in times of difficulty, of being pushed in by the world, maybe especially in those times, of going off to be in communion with the Lord, in his case, with his Father in heaven, in our case, with him. Now, if we move on to verse 24, but the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, if you extrapolate the time frames of of the night and the day and, and so on that are mentioned in Scripture, it's probably... They're probably in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Red Sea, which is big, right? So they're a couple of miles out. They've been rowing half the night. As Calvin says, their arms were not more fatigued by rowing than their faith was shaken by grievous terror. Calvin has a way with words. But it shows they're out there battered by the storm, undoubtedly with their own 
dealing with their own fears, and in that, they tend to waver away from Christ to the storm that's banging on the top of their head continually, right? Now, how does that affect us? What's that look like for us? After a joyous start of our Christian journey, and for all of us, our Christian journey is a joyous start, I'm sure, things become difficult or threatening. Our response can be often like theirs. Our faith can weaken in the face of challenging worldly cares and trials. And it's not for the beginning. It's all of us. Your life brings those things down around your ears, right? And we can look away, right? Now, in their case, when we see what happens next, they're sort of being set up for Jesus coming to them because we know this. We, we know the story. They didn't, right? But the significant thing for us is the response often in challenging situations is to, to lose our focus as Christians, Now, it says, in the fourth watch, he came to them on the water. The fourth watch is between 3 and 6 a.m. So they'd been rowing since the previous day in an open boat in the middle of this massive gale, right? When it says the winds were contrary, that's what it means. Big winds going back and forth and so on. They've been out almost overnight, battered terribly in the open boat. The testing of faith often extends past our estimate of our human limits. That's our estimate, not the real, the real limit of our, that we have, but it often pushes us. What is actually needed for things to be tolerable is for us to know the Lord and know things to the Lord. Only he knows our true capacity and need. So, we get pushed in life, just like they are pushed, past their abilities. What happens? They start to sort of waver and get scared. Our trust and theirs is to trust and hold to him. That is worldview, right there. And what's happening while this is happening to the disciples? We have to step back and say, what's happening? They are being reinforced. They're learning Think back what the scripture said about learning, reproof, correction, and so on. They're being put through trials, and what's being reinforced? Their dependence on God and on Christ. Their worldview is being reinforced. So with the night and the storm, they're tested. They fall back into worldly suspicions because... When they saw him coming, they say, it's a ghost. And they cry out. Now, you might say, why a ghost? At that time, the idea of supernatural spirits was very common. And this would have been, when they turned back to the world, this would have been where they would go. Right? This was their blankie. When they turned back to the world. We might look at different things. But they would turn to that. Now, for us in our Christian walk, what happens? Initial bumps on the path, we shrug them off. The little things, we have faith. We just blow the little things away. However, as the distress grows, our faith can be sorely tested. 
we may turn to our traditional worldly views for comfort and security, whatever they might happen to be. But that's part of the learning process. Think again of 2 Timothy, teaching, reproof, correction, instruction. That's the circle. That's the human learning paradigm. That's how God designed us to learn. And so it's through this that the struggles and then we're tested and then if our worldview is sufficient, we turn back to the Lord, right? So what does Jesus do? Immediately he speaks to them saying, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now this is significant that the translation is it is I, but in Greek it's I am. It's the same I am that God uses for self-revelation in Genesis 3.14 and Isaiah 43.10 and 13. And that's significant because it, that's a statement of I am God. The disciples would have seen that because it was spoken in their language. Okay? And in translation, that can be a bit... It doesn't have the force. So it shows he is God to comfort them. And what is he saying? I am sovereign. God is sovereign. So, what's it doing? It's reinforcing the worldview that they already have. It's the same learning thing, right? He says, be not afraid. That echoes many reassurances in both the Old and New Testament, and it's it's sort of a constant, Jesus, and previously to that. However, the Lord here strengthens them by his presence, but he doesn't calm the storm yet. You might say, why? Well, once you're reassured a bit, you'll learn better if you continue to struggle for a little longer before things settle. Right? And that's exactly what he does here. The situation, of course, is absolutely safe. Nothing can take a true believer from his grip. If I look at 10, John 10, 27, it says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. It's safe. So you might say that you might, they might feel in peril during this exercise. We might feel in peril during the exercise. But it's made absolutely clear that it's under sovereign control and we are safe. So it's a safe classroom. Think of it that way. Despite how it might appear. So that in that we see the disciples as a group learning things. Now it is reduced to an individual level. So Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. What does Peter do? He models seeking the Lord earnestly despite adversity. He yearns for Jesus' bidding despite the situation. Is that our attitude in times of peril? And Jesus says, come. Peter gets out of the boat, walks on the water, and comes towards Jesus. Despite his fear, Peter doesn't think about it for a while and have a lot of angst and 
worry about it. He gets out of the boat. There's a book a few years ago written. I love the title. If you want to walk on the water, you've got to get out of the boat. Right? And, but he gets out. Now, it's interesting that this walk, even though brief, super surpasses anything that any prophet did. Nobody else did this, even for a few seconds. Just sort of an interesting aside. So when we hear the Lord command us through the true scripture, let us be bold and rush to do his, bid, his bidding. Are we typically that way? I saw a great cartoon last week. It was the first frame was a fellow praying and he was saying, Lord, please send me guidance and a sign. And the second frame was a hand from a cloud with a Bible in it. Right? Like that. Do we, are we typically this way or do we shrink back? Okay? And that's not a value judgment. This is a learning exercise. And as we talk about it, as we do what we're doing this morning, what is it? The worldview behind it in us is fortified and we are better equipped to do exactly that. We grow and learn, which is what sanctification is all about. But the wind, but seeing the wind, he became frightened and he said, beginning to sink, he said, Lord, save me. This is a great model. Peter's worldly fear builds. He weakens. And he takes his eyes off the Lord. He turns back to the flesh. And he sees the water starting to creep up over his ankles. Right? Now, aren't we like that? When things get, when the going gets really tough, if we really admit it, we, we falter a little bit. Right? But Peter does not respond to this life-threatening distress by focusing even more intensely on the world. He does the right thing. He doesn't turn back to the Lord only as a last resort. He doesn't try to swim. He doesn't call out for his buddies. He doesn't look for the life preserver, right? He doesn't look for worldly things instantly. He immediately he thinks of the Lord right away, right? And he cries out, save me. So, Peter's response to his own weakness is the appropriate response of the believer. A simple call to Christ. One of simple dependence and trust. He models simple, direct, humble, appropriate supplication before God. Now, remember that life entails more than surface conflicts. That's another piece of this, in a sense. If we look at Ephesians, what does it say? Our struggle is not just in the flesh. It's against rulers, against powers. Principal, it's outside of our view. It's, there's a, a, a macro, a, a larger conflict going on of which we see only a little piece. We are helpless alone within that. Only the Lord has the view has the power and can carry us through that situation. So, we have heavenly assurance. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, 
nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So, we're aware of this spiritual warfare, but we're safe still. And again, that's an important piece. Now, looking at that, only a foundational worldview based on the sovereignty of God and faith of Jesus produces the appropriate behavior. It produced the appropriate behavior with the struggle in the disciples. It produced it in, we see it here, in Peter. Even within his stumbling a bit, sinking a bit, still the behavior was appropriate because he had the correct worldview there. Now, as I say, although the disciples were already believers and acted from this base, Jesus uses the lessons of walking with him to reinforce and enhance that worldview. Our interactions with this narrative similarly similarly affect us in our hearts. Our minds, but our hearts as well. All right? I mean, my hope this morning as we go through this is that it affects each of you that way. Immediately, Jesus stretches out his hand, grabs him, and says, you of little faith, why did you go? So Jesus does not let him sink completely. He doesn't wait. Let's let him go down a few times before we actually, I grab him, and, and so on. He comes to his aid immediately. So the experience is totally under Jesus' control and is demon, demonstrably so. Well, this mirrors our process of sanctification bringing the believers along through controlled experience and correction under God's sovereign control and with his grace. And we have here, 1 Corinthians, no temptation has seized you. Basically, the Lord is there, is what this says. The Lord is with you. So, my questions. Do we... And I'll add immediately. Remember the Lord's assurance in times of trouble. Do we feel emotionally comforted and act on that basis? Do we support each other within our fellowship of believers with that in mind? Only a Christ-centered worldview results in correct reaction. That's all. And these interactions are what fortify that worldview. Now, when they get into the boat... The wind stops. The Lord demonstrates that their experience and all control is his. And when he wants it to happen, it's on his timetable. Our sanctification... Just checking. Our sanctification is under the Lord's sovereign control. Through the agency of the Spirit, it allows us for the exercise of new levels of faith as we acquire them, but it it further strengthens them under the guidance of the Spirit. The correct focus through this is our hope, the Lord. Now, in our case, it's primarily the Word and its directives or doctrine. Now, I'm going to stop here for one second and say, doctrine, the Word sometimes scares people. Say doctrine, they go, I just read the Bible. I don't want to know about doctrine. Doctrine isn't a scary thing. What is doctrine? It's the articulation or statement of the Bible's overall communication on a particular issue. 
It's the thoughts of the Lord on those issues, and thereby, it's our guide. At the end of this, I'm going to pray that his thoughts would be our thoughts as we go along. And that's exactly what doctrine gives us. That's what we study the Bible, is to understand what he says about things. And that strengthens our worldview. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. They show, after this experience and the difficulties, despite the stress, or because of it, you might say, they show the appropriate response of a believer to testing and deliverance and strengthening. It is simple worship and praise. Our job, in a sense, is worship and praise. Now, in looking at this, in looking at the worldview stuff at the beginning, and in looking at this specific example, numerous principles, which are stated elsewhere in Scripture as well, are demonstrated and summarized. The Lord has packed a lot of summary into this little narrative of experience. Now, the principles were for the immediate benefit of the disciples, obviously, but they apply equally to each of us as believers. This discourse, as I used the term before, affects our worldview. And its result, and the result of that worldview, in our lives. Now, we could sum up the things, there's a lot of things in here, we could sum them up in five, roughly five points. The first, the sanctification process is one of learning. But there is never any danger of being lost from his control. Scripture is abundantly clear on this, and we read a little bit of it before, but there's other examples, that it, that is the reality here and now. This is important because we do tend to say, I feel afraid, I don't feel safe. It's just where we go sometimes. And so reinforcing the fact that we are becomes important. Second, The Lord demonstrates to both the disciples as a group and Peter, as an individual in this situation, the learning process of sanctification proceeding by grace through faith. Okay? We know that it's by God's grace that the control happens. It's through the faith that's based on the heart and the worldview. The process is shown. In every instance we've seen here, the Lord is absolutely sovereign. And in every instance of us, it's absolutely sovereign. His his control. Bringing the individual along at the exact speed they can handle. That's important. The exact speed they can handle in reality, not what they think. You know, it's easy to say, okay, that's enough. I can't take anymore. But only the Lord knows what the truth. And only he knows what's appropriate. And allowing them to gain confidence at each level. For the true believer, no matter how one might stumble on the path, sanctification functions within full assurance of the outcome. He will take you home. When I minister to some of the old folks, okay? Now, these are people really suffering. I mean, some of the, you know, one lady's almost, almost 100. And... 
it's really important. Well, one lady said, I can't even find, I can't find my way back to my room. And I said, well, you may not be able to find your way back. You may get lost going to your room, but you can't get lost going to heaven. The Lord takes you to heaven. You can't lose your way if you are a believer. Right? And that's really significant. Many events occur in our path. Some we understand, but most, in the larger sense, we do not. In life, there's a lot of stuff. Testing and stress, we don't get it. Which makes the suffering really hard. We don't get it. But the most important focus for us is on the author and finish of our, of our faith. Jesus Christ. And that's, you know what? That's easy to say. But there's nothing in the Bible that says easy. Right? It's often challenging. But it's the reinforcing of the background belief, the worldview that makes it possible for us to hold the line, you might say, with the help of the Spirit. For the disciples, it was this focus was Jesus. Well, for us, it is Jesus and the manifestation of his message, the Word. Now, you notice in these five points, I've repeated myself a number of times. You know why? Because sometimes you have to keep saying it. Right? You'll notice in the Bible often, uh, Paul's really big for that. If you read Paul, he says the same stuff over and over and over. It's called a diatribe in Greek, and it was a technique for stressing. You said it this way, you said it that way, you said it that way, on the basis that they were gonna, it was going to sink in, right? And I'm, I feel the same way in saying this. Although each of us may and surely will be weak and fearful, I don't know about you, but I definitely am and will be, as both disciples and Peter were here, the Lord will guide us safely through the process and home. Throughout these events, Jesus demonstrates absolute sovereignty, holding us, the disciples explicitly and us implicitly, securely. None that were given to him by the Father can slip from his grasp, as we read before. Let us truly live by these precepts. So as we walk with the disciples through this experience, our worldview, I will say, is affected. I hope it's affected as we are informed. Our hearts are informed by this. Our focus on the Lord is sharpened. For us, as for the disciples in this experience, we are better equipped to follow him in trust and obedience. And that takes us to what we're going to sing in a few minutes. Tis so sweet... Actually, we just noticed saying it. Tis so sweet... It's a favorite of mine. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus and to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, and to know, thus says the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Years ago, um, a senior saint who's passed along, passed along, wonderful man, I used to attend a prayer meeting, and he used to sing this in the middle of the prayer meeting sometimes. He used to just break into it. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. I've never forgotten it. Because it really expresses that longing, that yearning 
So as we wrap up and as we finish, I'll just leave you with something to consider. As we remember these events from the life of Jesus and the disciples, remember that the events written in the Bible, there were millions of other events that could have been written down. The events written here are written for a reason. They're deliberate. They're in the order they're in, deliberately. It's inspired. So if it's in here, it's in here for us to learn something. Okay? As we re- so as we read and hear this and other Bible narratives, let us examine our worldview to ensure that it is, and watch it, to ensure that it is founded on the simple reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. That and that alone. And the final thing is it all to the glory of God. Because the purpose of creation is what? It's to glorify God, the Father. But we, through our the simple reality of Christ, are called to that. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this time in this narrative of, we th- of the disciples. We thank you that you provided it for us, that you wrote it down, that you provided it in their life, and now you provide it in our life to help and mold and shape us, to strengthen us, so that people would, will walk, know that we walk with Jesus and that we will walk with confidence. And so we ask for your blessing on this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.